I'm Casey James, and this is the story of the Bridge House. I hurry past the green room, past the door to the conservatory, and up the stairs from the basement. The howling of the wind follows me, but at this point I have other things to worry about than what might or might not be outside, howling along with the storm. This time, I barely hesitate on the blue staircase to the first floor. I do pause briefly as I go past the map, though. There's something tugging at my thoughts, half-remembered. I stare at the brown ink, calligraphed onto the creamy paper or parchment, whatever it is. Maybe my eyes have adjusted to the low light after wandering through the basement more or less in the dark because it's a little more legible than it seemed earlier. The shape of almost familiar coastlines, and the names, the vast plateau of Leng, with Inganak on its southern coast, and a tiny marker labelled Koth, just north of that. Ulthar, Thran, and Hlanith on the coast, and Selafaeus on the other side of the channel. Celepheus, where the spider hand thing said I should go to visit him and to find Eddie. I make a mental note of that as I climb up the stairs. The lamps on the walls flicker and the fish scale wallpaper gleams and shimmers and it still feels like the ocean in here. I swear I can even catch a whiff of brine and sea sand in the air, although it's probably just humidity from the rain. I follow the stairs up from the landing, towards the tower. It seems like days or weeks ago that I came up here last, still more curious to explore the house than frightened of it. It's only been a couple of hours. <laughs> the mermaid is still hanging there, endlessly bleeding out under the crude laughter of the sailors. The cats are still lounging on the docks of their fantastical city, Late sunlight catching flecks of gold and copper in their fur. Their eyes shine in the dim stairwell. The cards are still spread across the stairs, and I step carefully over them. The Queen of Spades is face up, staring at me with the blank, dead eyes of a corpse. And the King of Clubs, which has Eddie's face, with spiders in place of his eyes. I genuinely think I may have an issue with spiders after that thing in the basement. The rest of the staircase passes in a bit of a blur as I hurry upstairs. When I reach the door to the tower room, I rush through, out of breath, and then stop. The crystals are still there, untouched. On the coffee table beside the wingback armchair, Everything is exactly how I left it, however long ago I was up here last. Not a book is out of place, not a whisper of air moves, but outside the sky is black and purple, whirling and roiling with weirdly shaped clouds and flares of lightning, while the wind howls like something being tortured. The ground is invisible, a moving mass of shadow and fog. 
and the small pool of light from the reading lamp I left switched on when I was up here before seems much smaller than it did then. Back already? Says the disembodied voice from before, the one Ariel called Walker. Yes, I say, ignoring the tickle of unease I feel and wondering where Ariel is right now. No more trouble with the Vodniki, then? Asks Walker, just a little mocking. Nothing I couldn't handle, I say. That might be stretching the truth a little, since I doubt I could have handled the things in the conservatory without Ariel's help. But I did handle them. Walker doesn't respond, but it's hard to judge the expression of a disembodied entity. Is he a ghost? Or something more like Ariel, whatever she is? Entity is probably the best definition I have right now. I probably should have asked at some point, or at least paid more attention to the question. I found the light, I say after a moment. To prove it, I hold up the jar full of liquid starlight, quintessence, from the basement. It's still shining and shifting, full of reflections and variations, equations that I can almost comprehend. I wouldn't have imagined that liquid starlight would be full of mathematics, but it makes sense, really. Amongst other things... Says Walker. Pure quintessence for the Etherstone. You could have just brought a candle, you know. You didn't have to touch the void or break the lines of the circle or release the tooth fairy. <laughs> the tooth fairy? I ask. And what do you mean break the... Hmm. I stop, reviewing my memory of the basement drawing room, the pentagram in chalk and the circle around it drawn in what probably really was blood. Oh, I say. Yeah, that. Yes, that, says Walker. He chuckles. <laughs> I grimace and admit it has been brought to my attention that it was a bad idea. He laughs again. <laughs> you definitely sped things up. Are you going to use the stone then? Close the gate. Sped things up? I ask. Just a little, he says. Enough to make it interesting. My bet is still on you, though. I'm not sure if that's comforting. I still have things to do, though. So I shake myself and step closer to the ring of gemstones on the coffee table. There, at the northmost point, is the clear crystal that Walker had identified as an ether stone. The one I'd seen in my dreams, and again in the vision I'd experienced when I opened the door to the bridge house. I stare at it for a second, then, slowly, hand shaking a little, I pour the liquid starlight over the ether stone. 
It vanishes as I pour, absorbing into the crystal which begins to pulse with a bright blue-white light. I finish pouring, and the crystal pulses for a few seconds more, then settles into a steady glow like the quintessence itself. It even has that same sense of swirling formulae and fractals that the liquid light had in it. But beyond the glow, nothing happens. I breathe out in relief, suddenly aware that I'd been holding my breath. The disembodied voice chuckles again, <laughs> warm and almost touchable, even if it's also creepy and possibly demonic. I really probably should have asked Ariel exactly what Walker is. Even if there's a good chance, I wouldn't have understood the answer. I wonder where Ariel is, actually. It's yours now, the crystal. You can use it to change the state of things. So I can use it like your key to close the gate, I ask. If you use it with the breath of Osiris, yes. I raise the wooden flute to my mouth, realizing as I do so that I've done it before. Hundreds, thousands of times. I've been here before, dreamed this moment of slow inevitability so many times I, I can't even count them. I know the sound the flute will make. The whisper of music that will emerge from it to seal the gate. Such a pity that you'll be stuck here on this side of it with me. Says Walker idly. Well, a pity for you. What? I say. I move the flute away from my mouth. And I would turn to stare at him if I could see him. This invisible, disembodied thing is kind of annoying. Oh, yes. He says. It's far too late to keep the bridge house on the mortal side of the gate. You always have been. And since you broke the circle, you're part of the right now, gatekeeper. No getting around it, I'm afraid. So what do I do? I ask, like the idiot that I am. There's a moment of silence, and I imagine him shrugging. I'm a little disturbed to find that I have a very clear mental image of Walker, and it has a fairly charming smirk and shrug. I shake my head slightly. The choice is yours, he says. You can leave it open, if you wish. Travel freely between this side and the other, just like the rest of us. Watch us suck the marrow from the bones of your enemies. And my friends, and strangers. I know what would happen if I leave the gate open. I've seen it in my dreams. Nightmares. I don't think I can do it. Leave the entire world to that fate. From the mocking tone of his words, 
Walker knows it too. Or you can close it and stay here, he says. There are other ways across, of course, if you can find them. If you can survive long enough to find them. I've seen those endings too, in my dreams. I die, horribly, every time. But the world lives. I raise the flute again. Or you could make a deal with me, says that disembodied voice. A phantom touch brushes my cheek again, light as a moth. Let me come with you. I know the safe roads on this side, the places you can hide. I can keep you alive. And I won't do any real harm on the other side. Real harm, I repeat, making air quotes with my fingers. <laughs> I can feel laughter in his voice as he says, I'm not like the others, darling. Pain and suffering don't do very much for me. So, say you'll take me with you. Outside, the wind howls like a demon, and I shiver. There's a low groaning noise, almost subsonic, although it's slowly getting louder. The sound of gears grinding up against one another, of the subtle machinery behind the walls of reality, protesting the weight of something impossible, something nightmarish and alien. Take you with me how? I ask. Do you have an anchor buried under the roses as well? Isn't that where she hid it? He says. Which is mildly concerning. I mean, Ariel's bottle isn't there anymore, so it's only mildly concerning, but still. Focus! I say, snapping my fingers in the air. Apparently, I'm on a deadline. You are, in fact. He says. I'm focused. I sigh and rub my face. I'm just... I'm just checking, I say. Trying to check. I want to know exactly what you're asking. You were talking about possession when I was up here before. Possession should be a personal experience, he'd said the last time I was in the tower. That's not something you forget. Not in a couple of hours. I am now, too, he says. Hide me inside your temple of fallen blood, and I will protect you. That still sounds like a bad idea, I say. The weird groaning sound gets louder, the edges of reality scraping at each other. Is it a sufficiently bad idea that you're willing to die with her? Walker asks. You don't know that I'll die, I say, 
I don't. But it's a strong probability. I won't let them have you if they can help it, but... Outside, thunder crashes, and there's a searing flash of lightning, so quick it must be right on top of us. I flinch, although intellectually I know that if the lightning had hit me, or the house, the ducking wouldn't do any good. In the sudden quiet after the thunder, the clouds part, and bright moonlight floods in through the windows. The groaning sound is even louder now, and lower, like icebergs breaking, like that bass note at a club that you almost can't even hear, you just feel it in your ribcage and your sternum, vibration more than it is sound. And under that, I can hear chanting. Voices overlapping, calling out a series of words and names, an indication that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It feels like pressure, like something is trying to crack my skull open and climb inside, which is ironic given that's sort of what Walker just suggested. Ariel? I say. Are you around? Of course I am, Casey James. You're still carrying my anchor, says Ariel's voice behind me. I never expected to be quite so glad to hear her, even when she adds, The speaker in darkness is too, though, so you should probably hurry along if you're planning on doing anything about the gate. Oh, uh... Right, I say, as I turn to face her. The speaker in darkness, huh? Have I met them yet? Ariel tilts her head and looks at me carefully. But before she can say anything, Walker says, I think you've met most of the locals, but you'd know if you'd met Dracula. Dracula, I repeat, incredulously. Really? No, not really, says Ariel. But it's considered unwise to say his actual name. Right, I mutter. Thunder crashes again, drawing my gaze outside, where the rain has stopped falling in favour of a thick fog. Just like my dream in the kitchen. The fog seethes like the surface of the ocean rippling waves of it carrying the silver sheen of the moonlight. Ariel is also staring out the window, and her expression is definitely concerned. A thought occurs to me, and I swallow against my suddenly dry throat. I have read Bram Stoker, after all. This this Dracula, speaker in darkness, person, entity, you, I mean, he's not actually Dracula, right? With the whole vampire turning into a mist thing, like the book? 
I watch Ariel's gaze snap away from the window and to me with rising anxiety. Not a vampire, exactly. No. Says Walker. Why would you ask about him turning into mist, Casey James? Asks Ariel. No reason, I lie. Thinking of smoky tendrils of mist creeping around the window frames and into the kitchen. Dust motes lighting up like a column of glitter topped with eyes of flame. A kiss that tasted of wine and licorice. And blood. No reason, I say again. Just... Um, Ariel frowns slightly. Walker makes a noise somewhere between thoughtful and displeased, and I can feel the straining of reality as that iceberg groaning sound of reality stretching comes again, low and distressing. Outside, the light grows subtly brighter, and its color changes. I can't really describe what color it changes to, only it's not just silver-white moonlight anymore. There's a low rumble, and the floor and walls vibrate slightly. Make your decision, Morgan, says Walker. I can help you, but only if you let me. I take a deep breath and look at Ariel. What are the odds that he's telling the truth? I ask. 96.4, she says without hesitation. It's not the whole truth, though. Of course not. <sighs> I sigh. And the likelihood that he can actually help me? Ariel hums and makes a so-so gesture with one hand. Hmm. That is fluctuating considerably, she says. What he wants to do, is it harmful? Necessarily? I ask. It is not, says Walker. That very much depends on which exact desire you are referring to, Casey, says Ariel. Not helping, I mutter. Okay. It's not actual possession, right? He can't take me over. Not if he agrees not to, says Ariel. Lightning flashes again, and I can see wisps of mist rising along the floorboards and the carpet, and drifting down the walls like water from a leaky roof. Ariel is watching it as well, with her calculating face on. Let me help you, gatekeeper, says Walker. I... Yes, I say, interrupting him. Yes, all right, fine. You can help. You can... If you can keep me safe from whatever else is in here, you can, whatever, ride along in my head. But you do not get to be in control or mess with anything in there, and... And apparently, you also need to get me better shoes. He makes a surprised sound. The sound of someone who didn't expect to get a yes, and is really terribly, unreasonably pleased about getting one after all. 
This is probably a terrible idea. But how bad can possession possibly be? I haven't dreamed this ending yet. I raise the flute to my mouth again and breathe into it. Hearing that familiar melody as reality groans and creaks all around us. As mist seeps down the walls and my heartbeat slows and beats in time with some silent, vast ocean that I can barely sense. As Walker's invisible fingertips touch the side of my face again, they're the light. The feeling of the gate closing around me is familiar. Horribly, nightmarishly familiar, like those dreams where you're falling, where you can't breathe. And you know you have to wake up before you hit the ground, or you might not wake up at all. And then Walker kisses me. Invisible lips meeting mine, and something too chaste to be called a real kiss, and too heated to be anything else. And he slides into the space at the back of my skull, where I didn't even know there was a gap. That sensation of an alien consciousness burrowing down into me, behind my eyes and into the back of my brain, as the mist and the darkness rise around me. Yeah, that's entirely new. Neophile will return for Season 2 on December 2nd, 2022. Keep an eye out for us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>